making the uh, switch on the clock this morning. Good job. It uh, does screw with your, uh, you know, your sleep and your circadian rhythm. It, uh, it do, it'll mess with you for a couple of days. So it's actually some, uh, I don't know why they keep doing it, but they keep doing it. So we, they didn't ask me first. So yeah, welcome. If you're a guest and you made it this morning, that's super impressive. It means you did two things at the same time. So we'd love to get to know you. So if you'd be so kind as to fill out one of these brown cards and place it in the basket outside the door, and we will hook you up with some coffee and some donuts, or singular, I donut. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. We'll stay in touch with you and that kind of thing. So I'm Tim Butler. I'm a former elder here, and uh, the, the, regular, the regular guy is off today, so you're stuck with me, so he picked an odd week. But we're going to talk about something that he started last time. He started talking about marriage. And if you are here last week, or if you want to grab the tape, uh, he talked about marriage being sort of the foundation of a covenant, or it's a, it's a contract, or it's an agreement, uh, maybe a commitment. And so in that, ideally, is a safe place where no one's going to leave. But in that also is a potential to be feeling trapped at times where you're, you can't leave. And so that trappedness makes you sometimes have problems with each other. That's called conflict. And so we're going to touch on that a little bit today, and I'll, I'll talk about that more. But he explained conflict perfectly. I could never have thought it as well as him. He talked about the, the picturesque covered bridge that had an 18-wheeler rolling over it. He said he uses that when he marries people. I haven't figured that one out yet, but there must be some logic to it. But that 18-wheeler rolls over that bridge, and the 18-wheeler does not create the cracks in the bridge, but the 18-wheeler exposes the cracks in the bridge. And so just like having kids, uh, kids don't reveal anger. We, we had his kids for a couple of days, and, and they didn't make me mad. I was mad anyhow on those kids, just kidding. Um, they have great kids. We held them for a couple of days. They're perfect kids. But right, kids will press you. They'll test you. Um, and so that doesn't create anger, but it reveals anger and patience or whatever stuff is going on with you. And so it's that, it's that tension of marriage, it's that tension of family uh, that creates conflict. And, and again, again, conflict doesn't build character, conflict reveals character. Conflict shows what you're made out of. But repeatedly going through conflict and repeatedly managing it well, that will build character. And that will either work for you for the better or for the worse, depending on how you respond to the conflict. And so this morning, there's so many areas I could go on the subject of, of marriage. And being a therapist, I've got a little bit of credibility. And it's a huge door. And so I'm just going to take a really small slice. And I'll explain to you why it's a small slice. But I'm just going to talk about conflict. And just like Kyle said last week, it's tough to talk about this to a mixed audience, whether you're live or catching it on podcast, is there's any number of variations. You could be single, and God has called you to be single, and that's great. I mean, marriage is not for everyone. And so you know, I sit with marriages that wish, wish they were single, and I sit with singles that wish they were married. So really, both sides always look at the other side anyhow. So if you're single, and that's great, no problem. You can use this to kind of connect with other people, the material I'm going to share. Um, maybe you're uh, thinking of getting married, or someday you want to get married. You're not married yet. That's a perfect state, because life is perfect, and you're perfect, and the marriage will be perfect, and everything will be great. And I'll see you about a year after you're married. We'll talk about that. So I do some premarital counseling, um, but not a lot because, quite frankly, it's hard to talk to somebody who's that naive because they don't really know what's going on. And they can't know what they don't know. But uh, I had one recently that was about as far on the continuum of conflict management. And I just got the massive red flag and started waving the red flags. And there's problems all over here. We're going to have to work on some things. So you might be newer to the thought of getting married and someday you want to get married. That's great. Save this tape. Come back to it, listen to it when things hit the fan. Um, or maybe you've, uh, 
maybe you've been divorced, um, complications of marriages, marriage is complicated, divorce is complicated, and so it's, there's a lot going on there. And maybe you've been widowed, maybe you're single again, maybe you're married again. There's all those variations. The material that I'm going to share, you can use with anybody. You can use it with your kids. You can use it with anybody that you connect with on a regular, intimate basis. And then to the, the rest of you that are married, I'm going to break up into three groups, uh, not figuratively, but literally. There's those of you who have been married like one to ten years, somewhere in there. And then there's those of you who have been married like ten to twenty-five years. And then those who have been married 25 and longer. And the reason I'm breaking you up is because those are the three big speed bumps of marriage. There's going to be a speed bump run 10 to 13 years for a whole bunch of reasons. And I can't rabbit trail everything or I'll never finish. So there's a bunch of reasons why the marriage will hit a speed bump run 10 to 13 years. And then, the, then it kind of levels off. Then there's another speed bump around 25 to 30 years. And then it levels off. And then really the relational quality goes up after that and because you realize, yeah, we're, we're in this thing together and we're not going to change each other and we figured out a rhythm and whatever the rhythm is, good or bad, we've, we've endured this far. And so if I've seen you for, if you've been there for 25 or 30 years, there's a high chance you're going to make it to the end zone. There are some exceptions. I certainly have had my share of exceptions exposed to that. But, uh, so that's kind of the three groups. Um, so don't be surprised if you're in one of those groups and you're kind of hitting the, hitting the skids. Uh, you know it's a problem when you see me if you've been married like two years. You're seeing me already. That's, that's a real warning sign because it should be Still kind of smoother until you're about 10, 13 year mark. So we're going to talk about this huge topic, bring it down to just what both practical and biblical advice on the subject of, of conflict. I mean, the Bible addresses a lot of things and a lot of things the Bible is not specific. I mean, there, you know, there's no verse that says when you argue with your spouse. I mean, it's not Hezekiah 3.7. You know, when you argue with your spouse, do this. It's not there. And so you've you got to kind of take it from the scriptures and say, what can I apply to my life, what applies to me. And I will give a disclaimer that as a therapist, I will reference some patient stories, but I've changed all the pertinent data, and, and no one's in this room, so you won't have any idea who I'm talking about. So that's, that's a safe spot. But the key, the key to marriage, the key to marriage, long-lasting marriage, is to manage conflict well. Um, managing conflict well will determine both how long you stay married and how well the marriage goes. So I don't care if you're a Christ follower or not. Um, the divorce rates are, are similar depending on if you're following Christ or not. Uh, one quick rabbit trail. Um, the divorce rate actually goes down if you're serious about following Christ. If you practice your faith, if you're reading in the Bible on a regular basis, if you're praying on a regular basis, you're about 35% higher, lower, depending where you want to go, right, to stay married uh, than somebody who is uh, practicing their faith on a very shallow level. So being a Christian doesn't make you avoid uh, conflict because you're always going to have conflict. It's a part of life. Um, but it, it's that simple, that just manage conflict well and you'll, you'll manage your marriage well, but it's not that easy. And I recognize that, that it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And here's, here's three potential reasons for it not being, uh, not being easy. One is that we're... We're hardwired very differently, right? Males and females, we're hardwired. This is not rocket science. You understand that if you've been around the opposite gender any length of time. Here's some interesting uh, data for you. And the three dyadic possibilities of people kind of living life together, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm just talking about living life together. You know, male, 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 female, and female, female. The three dyadic possibilities to dyad two people. Three possibilities of people being together. The highest rate of relational conflict is female, female. Not a surprise. Maybe shouldn't say that. But yeah, so the highest rate of dyadic conflict is female, female. The lowest rate of dyadic conflict, male, male. Uh, ooh, whatever. We don't care. Yeah, move on. 
So somewhere in the middle there is that male-female. And so, right, God made us totally different. And then he said, here, get along, right? That's always a recipe for danger, right? We're totally different. We think different. We just totally think different. And then we also tend to pick different people, right? Opposites attract. Isn't that cute? Well, that's job security for me. But it's not that cute after a while because opposites, we are opposite. And so we see things opposite, which means not the same. And so it's hard to manage conflict when we're opposites. So well, God wired us differently, and he did that for a reason. It wasn't a mistake. It was a grand plan uh, that we're different. And then we all come from different traditions of handling conflict. Your family of origin has a lot to do with sort of the trajectory of where you're going to be going in terms of handling conflict. So some of you came from families in which you, you really got after it, and you know, sort of you, you, you wrestled everything to the ground. And the other end of the extreme is some of you may have come from families and where we just ignore it. We don't talk about anything. Like one, one big secret, we don't address those. And so your tradition, your average, your norm, your, your usual is what you'll bring to the table until, until you make some changes. Um, I brought to the table the fact that my father thought it was great to incessantly tease my mother. And he t- would tease her on a regular basis. And so I brought that right into my marriage. This is great. Until I realized it doesn't really work with my marriage. It didn't work. So I had to kind of make sure that I kept things apart from the way I was raised versus the way that, uh, that your, your spouse, the one you're with now, can accept it. And so you have very different backgrounds. Um, I had a couple recently who, uh, one of the partners, um, just avoided conflict at all costs, at all costs. And the other individual grew up in just as really strong conflict where it was healthy conflict, and we'll explain some of that, what that looks like, but they couldn't have been more different. And they were not at all connecting. And so, obviously, if you come from a background, you're going to bring it with you. And so it's really important to sort of figure that out. What, uh, what do we need to do to mesh together? So we're wired differently. We come from different traditions. And we've all had different experiences. We've all had different experiences. And the past doesn't predict the future, but the past can affect the future. And so I was with a person who was with a very, uh, very dominant father. And there was a tremendous amount of pressure at home. And so it was, it was her goal to avoid all conflict going forward, all conflict to avoid it. Same concept, um, but it doesn't work because you can't live life without conflict. And I'll share what that, meant, what that means. But another individual who had been through uh, so much abuse and so much um, yeah, bad stuff happening that they were constantly with a loaded gun, uh, figuratively. With, with a loaded, I'm never going to lose again. I'm never going to lose in conflict. I'm always going to win. So I'm kind of in it to win it. And that... Yeah, that's about as bad as the other one. So your experiences will cloud how you uh, manage conflict uh, with your spouse. And again, it doesn't matter if you're a Christ follower or not. Uh, from the standpoint of conflict, it's, it's what you bring to the table, um, what's your natural, what's your normal, what your default position is. So I'm not a marriage expert. I mean, I've only been married four times, and I've been, I mean, no, just kidding, married once. 32 years, 32 long years, and uh, so we're in that 25 to 30, we're past that, so everything's just perfect for us, right? Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a marriage therapist, and I don't know, I didn't do the tally, but I, can, I have counseled conservatively over 4,000 couples over 20 years, so got a little experience, and I've seen a lot of different styles, and I can tell you there's a lot of things that do work, but there's some things that don't work, and they never work, so before I, I want to get that out of the way. Before I tell you how to, how to practice marriage through managing conflict well, I want to tell you uh, how to kill a marriage. 
I'm going to tell you what will kill a marriage. And again, there's a lot of things that do work, and they're strange, but they work. But there's some things that just don't work. And so John Gottman is a marriage researcher who talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Maybe you've read this before. It's not mine new. Um, criticism. If criticism is there on a regular basis, critical, um, harsh words on a regular basis, that will undermine and ultimately um, lead to the death of a marriage. Uh, defensiveness. Uh, where you don't own something, you don't take it. Uh, the classic line is when I tell somebody they're defensive, their first line is, no, I'm not. You know, so it's tough to tell somebody they're defensive because they have a hard time receiving that. But if you're constantly defensive uh, and you don't receive anything, that's, that's heading down the pike for uh, this isn't going to work well. Third thing is, uh, is um, criticism, defensiveness, and then stonewalling. Stonewalling is, is I'm, just, I'm just locked in. I'm just, I'm, I might not talk. I might not address the issue. I'm just... I'm just not going to go there. And just kind of a locked-in state, kind of talk to the hand, you know, kind of a thing. So it's just not, uh, yeah, not going to be part of, part of the relationship. And that'll kill it eventually. If that just keeps going, that'll kill it. And the fourth one, not in any, not in any order. Um, fourth one is contempt. Contempt is a word that, I don't know, it, it, it means different things to different people. It comes from the, the Latin word scorn, uh, sort of the disgust with anger. I mean, there's just sort of this vitriolic, uh, just bitter. Uh, as, a, as a therapist, I, I get the benefit and the blessing and the curse of witnessing all these relationships. And boy, a, a, a contempt marriage where there's contempt going on, it's just, it's ugly. I keep, a, I keep a fire extinguisher next to me. I just hit the air once in a while because flames erupt from these couples that are with me. So it's, you know what's going south. If those three, four qualities, in any, any one of those four qualities are there, it's going to go south. And I even had one that was... Uh, it was a godly guy, and he was, you have to kind of appreciate this one, it was almost godly contempt. It was the most literal, proverbial, hitting somebody head over the head with the Bible. And I thought, oh, man, this is not, this is not Jesus here. This is not, you've got to kind of circle around to this. I don't know how that will turn out. We're still in process there. But when those contributions, those four negative areas, when they offset the good on less than a five-to-one ratio, right, it takes five good things to cover one bad thing. If we're doing one-to-one, good-to-bad, the marriage is not going to last. So on average, we need five good things for one bad thing. Think of it like you've heard this analogy before, like depositing money in the bank account. I mean, if if you put $100 in, you can't take $200 out. I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? You're overdrawn. So you can't have all the bad without the good in the marriage, and so we need a five-to-one ratio. So if you're looking to keep score for yourself, just plug in five good things if you're going to put in a zinger. Just make sure there's more than five good things. Actually, I'm hoping you're not going to do that, but... That is, that is the need that we have. We need, we need, we need a lot of the positive because there's going to be plenty of negative. And even in a good marriage, um, there's plenty of, mar- plenty of negative. So what do you need to do uh, to get better at managing conflict and ma- managing marriage? I'm going to give you some suggestions in a couple minutes, both practical and, and, and biblical. But let me explain the fact that, for starters, 67% of conflict never goes away. Two-thirds of conflict in marriage never goes away. And you might think, that's kind of depressing. Well, it's just reality. Um, but it, it's necessary reality because here's a, here's a word picture that I draw. Uh, a marriage without conflict, in the first place, worries me because it's like driving a car on ice. Perfectly smooth, but just no direction, no control, just a float trip. And so the, it's the friction in the tires on the road that allows control of the car. It's the same thing. With marriage, it's the conflict that allows control and direction. And if there's no conflict, there's no direction. 
Now, if there's too much conflict, if there's too much friction on the road, it drags things down. Um, if you've been married long enough, you probably have these jovial conversations with your wife of, if you died, would you still, kind of thing, right? First question is, if you died, would you get remarried? That's an interesting one. Runs along gender lines. You know which gender that one probably is, right? Women say, now nah, that's it. Once is enough. And men, they're going to get married again. But se- separate from that, we have these conflicts in our marriage. If you died, would you? If my wife passed away, I would not put a dust ruffle on the bed. I would never have a dust ruffle on the bed. Those things are stupid. I don't know why they're there. We will always have a conflict with that, but it's not a big deal. It's those little deals and that we have a dust ruffle because she's more important than dust ruffle. But it's gone if she goes. But it's that kind of thing where... <laughs> so we need some conflict in marriage. We need some... Con- and, and I'm sure there's, that could switch both ways. So it's okay to be different in your conflict handling styles. It's okay to be different, something you've heard here at the church a lot, but it's not okay to stay there. It's okay to be different. We came in with very different styles of handling conflict. I'm kind of talk it out and get after it. She tends to be more silent on something. One of us had to switch over. And so it took me a lot of years to kind of realize that this isn't working. And so you'll realize that this isn't working. The definition of insanity is just keep doing it, hoping it'll get better. Well, it's, it's not going to get better. So there's, there's three different styles of um, problem-solving, conflict management, that really work in a healthy marriage. And so I said 67% of conflict never goes away. So we need to figure out a style that works, not avoid conflict. And if your only goal is to avoid conflict, we're going to show you a picture of that. It doesn't work. So when you're managing conflict, the dust ruffle on the bed, there's three different styles of um, functional that really work in a marriage. And there's no one right way, but it kind of depends on how you and your, your spouse roll. Or if you're single, uh, you know, you, you and your kids roll. Um, first one is collaboration. Collaboration is when you work together, we're going to talk this thing out. It could be good. And we're just going to kind of come to an agreement. And that's great. And we're going to show you in a second what that looks like. And then there's a second one that may seem odd if you're not there, but it's competing with volatility. There's a, there's a marriage conflict style that does work. And I've witnessed it countless times where there's this major um, eruption in passionate disputes, and then they passionately make up, and then they passionately dispute. It's, it's a real stretching game, but it, it, it can work if, it's, if, it's, if, it, if they're both on the same page. Maybe think of it, if I was to use a football term, um, What's the guy's name? Odell Beckham with the Giants, who's just this passionate guy, and uh, he's a real stinker in the John Culker terms. Um, but he plays, he plays football just as passionately. So when he plays, he plays passionately. And when he's out of control, he's out of control passionately. It's that same kind of a thing. Um, it didn't work for Johnny Manziel, but that might be a brown thing. But it's a, when, they, uh, when they get after it, they get after it passionately. And then they, and then they make up passionately. And, and sitting as a therapist, especially as a new therapist, two decades ago, it kind of freaked me out. Like, oh, what's going on? Reach for the fire extinguisher. I'm like, nah, they're fine. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. It's kind of cute in somebody who's been married for like 45 years, and they're just kind of get at it, and then they just have fun times, and they get at it. It works. So that's another style that works. So there's collaboration, competing, and then the third one is just avoiding conflict. Like, we agree to avoid conflict. It's not one-sided. It's not where somebody just shutting down stonewalling. We've just agreed it. Agreed it. We've agreed that we're just going to avoid most of the differences, and it works. I mean, it's just, it, it, it carries out. It's functional. And so there's some biblical passages that, that indirectly apply to marriage, and we can extract from them. Let's look at two of them right now. One's in Ephesians. It says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love, which means it's necessary in marriage to speak the truth. It's necessary in marriage to be loving with the truth. But now, those two words could be opposite, right? 
a couple nights ago, my wife lovingly said to me, you're not wearing that to community group, right? You know, it, it's a typical thing that men hear, but you don't want to switch it up. Guys, you do not want to tell your wife you're not wearing that, are you? Because somehow it doesn't translate as well. But we can receive it. It's just different. But she said, you're not wearing that, are you? No, I was just thinking of putting it off and just taking something else on. So speaking the truth, it wasn't, the colors weren't lined up. And so speaking the truth in love is a necessary part of marriage. But there's a time to tell the truth, and there's a time to just be quiet. And so, yeah, what's that tension, what's that balance of when to speak the truth and when to just wait a little while, speak a little later. And then the other one, that same verse that's on the screen, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, I put in spouse. Be at peace with your spouse. It would apply. When it's, when it's possible, which means it's not always possible. Peace is not always possible. And that's okay. So far as it depends on you, which means it may not depend on you. It's just one of those things where your partner is going to affect you, but you can't always control your partner. But if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace. And so I love the twist on that. I mean, it's just a great verse to just focus on and, and realize that, you know, sometimes peace isn't possible, and sometimes it's not my fault, and I'm just going to live with this thing. Think of things like, like money. When one person is a spender and one person's a saver, I mean, that affects each other. Um, I came into the marriage with lots of good stuff and not a lot of money. My wife came into the marriage with a nice, healthy savings account. We just handle money differently. And if she was without me, she'd probably have more money. But it's just how we, we handle it differently. So it affects each other. Um, but that's the, that's the dynamic. That's the tension that makes it good, though. Uh, if somebody smokes in the house and somebody doesn't want you to smoke, I mean, that, that'll affect the other person. So there's issues in a marriage, and then there's a relationship in a marriage. And there's this constant tension between the two, issue and relationship. So I've got a diagram to show you. This is a Thomas Kilman conflict mode that Thomas Kill and two guys that put this thing together. You've probably seen it before. But on the left-hand side, bottom to top, it's, it's the importance of the issue. And the bottom left to right is the importance of the relationship. And the, this is the five different ways of handling conflict. There's no one right way. But if you're stuck in a way, and if that's your only way, that's when it becomes problematic. For example, right now, uh, with all due respect to our new pastor, if this building caught on fire... Um, we would rush you all out the door as quick as we could with no regard for relationships, right? Because the issue would be everything. But if that's the only way I connected with you, then I'm a bully because I just push you around. So there's a time where the issue is everything. And some of you are more issue-oriented people. You know what I'm talking about, engineers. And where issues are everything, right? And so you tend to want to think issue, issue. But there's this thing called relationship. But if you only invest in the relationship, then we'll never address the issues. So there's, there's, a, there's a tension, there's a balance, and the word compromise is in the middle, but it's kind of overrated, you know? I like dogs, Debbie doesn't. We don't have half a dog. I mean, there's just no way you can pull that off. And so sometimes you just lose, and that's okay to lose. Like, we don't have a dog. Like, we don't have a cat, because, you know, cat did some bad things in the house. But so there's, there's the compromise thing. I almost don't like it, but it's there, so I have to put it up. But it's really the other four that... You're going to flow through those, depending on what's going on. And it's not bad. It's not bad. Unless you're the kind of person who thinks, I just want to avoid all conflict. And that's where you're at, right? Avoidance means we're never going to deal with the relationship, and we're never going to deal with the issue. 
And so we're not going to go anywhere because nothing ever gets addressed. We're not going to grow. And we're going to talk about growth and what, what all this means. And so that's the, just the practical. You can find those diagrams on, on, the, on the intranet and, uh, you know, put it on your refrigerator and kind of think, where are you in that thing? And where's your spouse? And what are we going to do? Where, where are we going to go? And then there's some fundamentals of conflict that um, the Bible talks about. And I'm going to read a passage that both directly and indirectly um, relates to marriage. Peter was addressing a diverse group of Christians, most, mostly Gentiles, on how to live, here, here's, the, here's the part where it really applies, how to live in a pagan and hostile society. Hmm, hostile? In a few verses, he talks about the roles of husband and wife. But really what he's talking about is how to live with somebody that thinks differently than you do. That's the operative segue. Who thinks differently than you do? Your spouse. They're not a clone. They think very, very differently than you do. So how do I live with them? And so 1 Peter 3, 7, let's show it up on the screen. I'm going to read through this slowly, and then we're going we're to double-click on some of these words um, and, and the passages, and we're going to go through it. You might as well call it the 12 steps of marriage because it's really a, it's a, it's a great list. So read through this with me, and then we're going to go back and kind of separate them out real slowly. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he's going to grant you his blessing. For the scripture says, and here he's referring to Psalm 34. For the scripture says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So let's stop and look at some of these one at a time. Be of one mind. Do you catch the irony in that? Because I just told you, you were not of the same mind. So God makes you totally different. Then says, you know what? Be of one mind. How do you pull that off? I think that if God intended us to eat squash, that yellow stuff, then he would have made it such that you don't have to douse it with brown sugar and butter so it tastes good. You know, squash is just not good for mankind. It's not, not fit for us. My wife loves squash. We are not of the same mind. But to be of one mind, we never have squash on the table because I don't like this stuff. When I pass it, I almost puke. It's just like, it's pretty intense to me. We aren't designed to eat squash. So we are of one mind because she doesn't serve squash, occasionally on the own on the side, but right? I love downhill skiing. It's a thrill. She thinks it's sinful. She thinks downhill skiing is evil. She's messed up her knee more than a few times and not a fan of cold weather. And so we are not of one mind. But we are of one mind on those subjects because I never invite her skiing. We never ski together anymore. And so being of one mind doesn't mean we agree. It just means somebody's changed their mind to think like the other person. And that's okay if that's not the only thing you do. But we're told to be of one mind. We see two kids that are fighting over a toy. What do we do? Work it out. Play it. You know, figure it out. Somebody's got to change their mind. But it's tough because sometimes the issue is really important. It's not squash, it's not skiing. It's really important. 
It might be like how to raise our children, how to discipline our children, or whether or not we should move, relocation. We went through a very tense time in our life when we had a relocation issue from Chicago to Bowling Green. It was one of those things where we're going to have to work it out. We're going to have to be of one mind. In hindsight, we can't imagine living in a better place in the United States except for Bowling Green, but that's we're biased. And so what does it take then to collaborate to be, on, to be of one mind? And so that simple phrase, we kind of, we've read it a million times, and Paul actually says it again in Philippians. He says it again in Corinthians. We've gone through that, but what does that mean? Be of one mind with somebody who thinks different than you. Figure it out. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. Sympathize with each other, it says. Sympathize. Feel sorry for each other. Literally, um, have compassion. Maybe the word empathy. Empathy, I, I feel sorry with you. Sympathy is I feel sorry for you. Now, the opposite of sympathy is critical. That was one of the four horsemen I brought up. Is critical. So sympathy means I'm going to feel what my partner feels. I'm going to stay in touch with my partner's emotions, which can be tough if, if one person is more emotional than the other one. I mean, that might run along gender lines, but I don't know, not always maybe, but somebody might be more emotional than the other one, and I need to be sympathetic with that and stay in touch with the emotions of the other person. Here's one that we read it and just kind of whipped on by. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Oh, I get to see the picture of that. Bella and Brixton just fought each other like cats and dogs when they had them. No, they didn't. They were fine. But I was in this church a while back, and I won't say who it was, but I witnessed some sibling rivalry that was just so beautiful. As a grandparent, it's kind of funny because, you know, you kind of pass that stage. But somebody was kind of stretching and just sort of touching the sibling, and the sibling's like, oh, my gosh, she touched me. That's like the worst thing, fate greater than death, you know. And I was watching this go on, and it was actually kind of funny. Now you're all wondering if I'm talking about your kid. I probably am because all your kids have done it. But I just happened to see that one time. So how should I love my wife as a brother and sister? I mean, I grew up with seven kids. There was like acts of violence in my house. I had five girls. Remember those dyadic relationships? Five girls. You know how much fighting there was in my house? My one sister, I was pretty young. She threatened to throw a knife at my other sister. It was like a butter knife. It was like, I hit under the table. I was sure I was going to count in the head. I'll throw this knife at you. It didn't happen, though. But brothers and sisters means we're on the same team. We're on the same team. See, those two little kids that were fighting here, you know they love each other because if they didn't love each other, they wouldn't fight. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And so love each other as brothers and sisters means let's be on the same team. Are we on the same team? Or have we long since left that team? People come to marriage counseling about six years after they should. And when I get them, the smoke is pretty thick. And I've got one or two sessions to try to get somebody to unhook from the fact that we are not on the same team. Love each other's brothers and sisters. Another thing he said is be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted, what does that mean? Mushy? No. Let's think of the opposite of tender-hearted. Contempt. We talked about that. One of the four horsemen. Hard-hearted. We can figure that one out, right? Kind-hearted, hard-hearted. Which means the tender-hearted means I'm going to put the issue above the relationship. The diagram I showed you up there, issue and relationship. Tender-hearted means I'm going to put the issue below the relationship. I'm going to give in. We have a dust ruffle. I love the dust ruffle. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing because the relationship is more important than the issue. 
And there's a million of those little things in your marriage. What's more important, the relationship or the issue? Peter says, keep a humble attitude. Humble attitude. The opposite of that might be defensiveness, that thing I was talking about, the four horsemen. Defensive or proud. No, he said, be humble. He said, in, in, when you're humble, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay insult for insult. I mean, that's just, that's sophomoric. She did this, so I did that. When I'm with a couple, I, I will let them discuss in front of me. Sometimes it's called fight. And I, I want to kind of see what's going on. And I don't care what they're fighting about, whether it's the dust ruffle or somebody had an affair. I don't really care the content. I care more the style. Because I want to know how they're disagreeing more than what they're disagreeing about. Because frankly, I'll never know the truth. And I hear so many, he said, she said, I don't know who said what said. But it's so sophomoric. And I see this slugfest going on. I thought, man, if you guys could only see a video. I, some, some, sometimes I wish I had more videos in my office. I probably should do that someday. Just to, did you guys know what you look like? So childish. No humility. Peter says, you know what? Pay back with a blessing instead. And if there's a blessing instead, will God bless your marriage? You know, it does seem to say that. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but there does seem to be a sense of where if you bless your partner, the blessings of God be upon you. Peter says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, if you want to be married a long time, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. I never know the truth. And well-meaning couples can think very, very differently. We had dinner last night with Margaret and Sandy. They were fighting no end about something. I don't know what it was. It was irrelevant now, right? But they were arguing on something that was funny. I'm just joking, messing with them. They had both a different version of the truth. What's the truth? I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. But you know what? Keep from telling lies when you can. The next phrase, search for peace and work to maintain it. Which is the same concept, right? Stop the sophomoric activity Search for peace. Do you want to be right? Do you want peace? What do you want? You can be right or you can be happy, but you can't be both. Search for peace. Because it is work. It is work to be married. It is work. It's okay that it's work. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Some conflicts are just evil. Some partners can be real stinkers. They can be straight-up abusive. And some marriages have lost all grace because one partner has a really hard heart. And it seems to say that at times the Lord just turns his face against those who do evil. I mean, God hates divorce, but God hates evil, and ah, that stuff gets in the middle there sometimes. I'll let you figure that one out. But go through 1 Peter yourself. The whole book is really a great book on kind of handling hardships, handling conflict, living with somebody who's different than you, and read it through the lens of a marriage. Because it's, it's a wonderful explanation. Um, you know, I quoted before the thought that There's no difference in the marriages between church and non-church unless you're really strong in your faith, unless you're really pursuing the Lord with a whole heart, unless you're really pursuing the Lord with a strong commitment. And then it brings your chance for divorce down because you've realized there's a force beyond your own. And you realize there's a help beyond your own. I'll I'll often see that if somebody's going to leave his spouse, his or her spouse, 
uh, they usually lead the Lord first. And as they lead the Lord, leave the Lord, they leave their spouse. They kind of go hand in hand. Because I can't really stay close to God. Divorce is complicated. I'm not talking about divorce. It's, there's a lot of issues. But I lose my hope when I start walking away from my source of my foundation. My, my hope is gone. And then I start working out my own efforts to make this thing happen. So when you read First Peter, read it for yourself and how you could be different in handling conflict in your relationship. Don't listen to it on how you can change your spouse. Because I'll, I'll give you a tip. You're not going to change your spouse. It might take you a few years to figure that one out. But you're not going to change your spouse. Your spouse may change on their own. But you're raising kids. You're not raising your spouse. And it's not pretty. When I see a parent-child relationship in a marriage, it really gets quite ugly. But it's oftentimes, I don't really want to change my spouse. I just want him and her to think like this. Okay, that's changing your spouse. But I know I don't want it. And I had some sparring with some people. I don't really want to change him. They just want to do this differently. Same concept. They're, they're really not liking the way they are now. Avoids the be of one mind thing. So marriage is a God thing, right? God made marriage. It's not an anthropological invention. God made marriage. And for those who God has called to be married, to be married that's a beautiful thing. Isaiah 26 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so marriage causes you to look to the source of your support, of your hope, of your encouragement. Um, I'll keep you, God says, in perfect peace if you keep your mind on me. If you focus on the negatives or the poor qualities of your spouse, you won't have peace. But God says, if you focus on me, I'll give you peace. There's a great book. If you're looking for a book on marriage, there's hundreds of them out there. Um, but one that's good, it's a little bit older. It's called Sacred Marriage um, by Gary Thomas. Sacred Marriage. And I'm going to read a quote. It's a longer quote. And so part of the quote is up on the, on the screen. When I'm done, you'll, you'll see it. But I want you to just kind of listen to this with me um, and, and see what Gary, uh, see what Gary has to say. God created us in such a way that we need struggle to stay alive. We know that, right? Ch challenge is what keeps us... Challenge is what keeps us seasoned. That word seasoned sounds kind of nice. It all sounds a little bit awkward. I'm going to be seasoned by my marriage, right? God created us that we need struggle. Challenge keeps us seasoned. But to be productive, our struggle must have purpose and it must be productive. Two people who do nothing but fight in their marriage and make each other miserable are not engaging in a helpful spiritual exercise. It's only when we put struggle within the Christian context of character development and self-sacrifice that it becomes profitable. Let me read that again. It's only when we put struggle within the Christian context of character development and self-sacrifice, then it becomes profitable, right? Character development, God's changing us, self-sacrifice, self-control, what I need to do to be a Christ follower. So here's the part that goes up on the screen. Ask yourself this question, still part of this quote. Would I rather live a life of ease and comfort and remain immature in Christ? Or am I willing to be seasoned with suffering? If by doing so, I am conformed to the image of Christ. 
oft-quoted comment, marriage is designed to make you holy, not designed to make you happy. It's changing me. I'm a different guy than I was 33 years ago. It's that fine grit sandpaper of marriage that knocks off the rough edges that nothing else can do, that creates holiness, not holier than thou, but completeness, godly perfection, not happiness. Every divorce I sit through, my partner doesn't make me happy. Great, we're on, on track. It's not supposed to be that way, but they don't get that. Until I see it in a godly context, that God created this thing called marriage, and God says, you know what? You're going to be seasoned, ripe, well-worn, conformed to the image of Christ. Marriage is both a treasure and a task to be accomplished. Marriage is a treasure, and it's a task. Both and. Both and. I might have gone a bit long. I apologize. I'm going to wrap up with a quote, another quote from Gary, Gary Thomas. This is not on the screen. Remember before I talked about uh, premarital counseling, I don't do a lot of it. I do some, but they can't know what they don't know, and so better that I talk to them in a year from now, but I do some. And so... There's that initial love, that kind of romantic pie-in-the-sky love, this kind of thing, you know, like, oh, we can never live apart from each other. Um, and it's normal, it's natural at the beginning. But this quote here relates to that. Romantic love, not talking about romance, but romantic love, what I'm talking about right there, has no elasticity to it. It can never be stretched. It simply shatters. The bubbles burst. Mature love, the kind demanded of a good marriage, must stretch as the sinful human condition is such that we all bear conflicting emotions. My emotions are real, but they don't always reflect reality. And so we've got issues in marriage. We've got conflict because our emotions are all over the place in marriage. We're emotional human beings. So mature love must stretch. It's called conflict. It stretches. We get better. Fine grit sandpaper. We get smoother. So here's the thought I'm going to leave you with. What is my role in my marriage, if you're married, if you're not with other people where you have a relationship? What's my role in that conflict? If you have consistent conflict with somebody, whether it's your marriage partner or somebody else, what's your role? If I asked you what the other person's role was, I wouldn't have enough paper to write it all down. What's your role? What's your role in that conflict? And what do you plan to do differently, differently in that conflict? Ongoing, chronic, episodic, whatever it is. What's your role right now? What role do you play? Go back to pull up, maybe on your own, pull up that Thomas Kilman chart and look at the issue versus the relationship. Where do you normally default to? Is it working? And maybe it is. But does it need to change? What could you do differently to make your relationship better? What could you do differently? I spend so much time pulling people apart so they can look at themselves. I hear this all the time. It makes for good comedy and good shows, but until I do this, we're not going to go anywhere. So what's your current style? What could you do differently? 
Because God designed marriage in a very beautiful way to refine me, to season me, to make me a different person. Why don't we stand and the band can come forward and I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for the institution of marriage. God, I don't particularly like to be seasoned, but you like it. And so I like what you like, and I recognize that I need it. So God, thank you for putting things in my life that caused me to be changed, to be seasoned, to be mature, to be godly, to be holy. God, I pray for a protection over every marriage that's both in this room and in the sound of my voice. I pray that every marriage would be protected, God. You love marriage. For those who have called them married, God, keep them together. And for those who have conflict that's seemingly out of control, God, change hearts, change minds, change rhythms. God, allow us to seek you first and seek each other second. In Christ's name.